Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For Tom Tillman, a brilliant if socially awkward genetics professor, order is a way of life. Methods, schedules, and data are his language. Until recently, Don has never had a second date. Then he got serious about finding a life partner. He created a 16-page questionnaire to find the perfect match, and he met and fell in love with Rosie Jarman, who, uh, from his point of view, according to his questionnaire, is the world's most incompatible woman. Uh, this is the story in brief told in the best-selling book, The Rosie Project. It's now been optioned for a movie. Uh, Graham Simpson continues this story in his new book, The Rosie Effect. We'll be talking about that on the program today and much else. Graham Simpson is a former IT consultant who decided at age 50 to turn his hand to fiction. And the best-selling novel has become an international phenomenon, sold more than a million copies worldwide. Uh, Graham Simpson lives in Melbourne with his wife Anne. They have two children. And uh, he'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Saturday, 7 p.m. Graham Simpson, welcome back to Access Utah. Great to talk to you again, Tom. Great to uh, be with you. So uh, the uh, the central uh, element of the plot uh, previously was uh, this very interesting man, Don Tillman. He's a very orderly man, a scientist, and he does everything by the scientific method. Uh, a 16-page questionnaire and uh, the, a lot of funny elements. And he, he met, uh, as he sees it, the most incompatible woman in the world for him. But uh, as in life, it all worked out. That's right, yeah. So it's just a little bit of a meditation about... Uh, how we find our partners, how we connect, um, about the the role of science and the uh, the role of emotion. And this is very interesting as well uh, because they meet uh, because she's looking for her her father, right? And so, the genetics professor Don Tillman can help. That's right. She wants to know who her biological father is. Her mother uh, had a, a one night stand at her graduation ceremony, or at the ceremony, but the party afterwards, and. Uh, went to a grave without revealing the identity of uh, Rosie's biological father. So uh, Don and Rosie go on the road, because Don's a geneticist, to discover who Rosie's real father is through surreptitious testing of DNA. And that's, of course, what brings them together. And uh, so she doesn't... Uh, she she flunks the questionnaire, but, but they end up together. Oh, totally. Yeah. She, she is, as, as you said, the world's most incompatible woman. So Don has absolutely rejected her as a candidate for the wife project um, but he's, he's happy enough to go out on the road with her for, for very hazy sorts of reasons to, to find her biological father so this is very classical Don Tillman his, his mind says one thing but his intuition is telling him another thing and he's, he's act, actually without realizing it acting on his intuition on his feelings and I recognize this this impulse to impose order on a sometimes chaotic world in some things that I do. I'm, I'm forever trying to find time management systems or something that will, you know, the, that will help me have some order. Don Tillman takes this to the nth degree, right? The wife, as you say, the wife project. That's he, he thinks he can. The wife project, the standardized meal system. Yes. So he always eats the same thing on a Tuesday, and that means he can plan his uh, his shopping. Um, his nutrition, all of those sorts of things. I mean, it's. I often, when I'm signing a book, particularly for men, I'll write. There's a little bit of Don Tillman in all of us, and uh, many, many women in particular will say, you know, my husband is is just so like that. He's so Don Tillman, and they'll often add, and he's an engineer. So, <laughs> so there, there's some stereotyping that maybe has some truth to it. Oh yeah, I think all stereotyping is a yeah. certain amount of truth. <laughs> now you you have a background that, that this is a very fascinating element of your story. Um, at age fifty, you decided to make a, a career change. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I worked uh, all my life in uh, information technology and, and business consulting, 
and then uh, having not written any fiction, um, not any original fiction anyway, since high school, um, I decided at the age of 50 I wanted to be a screenwriter. So I enrolled in an undergraduate program at my, my local college, and over five years I worked on a, a school project screenplay, I guess you'd call it, which became eventually a screenplay for The Rosie Project. And then lacking anybody who wanted to make that movie or who wanted to pay to make that movie, um, I decided to rewrite it as a, as a novel. And now, now it's been optioned for a screenplay. Yeah, yeah. So we went full circle, and Sony Pictures have optioned it um, and, and gave me the, the gig writing the screenplay, and they've now got producers and directors attached to the project. So nothing's certain in Hollywood until the cameras start rolling, but I'm feeling very optimistic. Who do you think ought to play Don and Rosie? Look, that's a, that's a question I get asked a lot. And, and other people, you know, Twitter and so forth, have kindly volunteered their suggestions. So, um, and the names get kicked around all the time for Don. People like um, Steve Carell, Paul Rudd, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Ewan McGregor. Th- these are people we've seen play um, Don-type characters in the past. So the general public says, yeah, well, that's, he does it well. And I'm sure all of those guys would do a, an excellent job of playing Don. But, but for me, um, I would just love to see somebody cast against type, you know, like Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind, someone you wouldn't expect um, to, to make the role their own and to bring, something, to bring something to it that isn't on the page in the book because, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of novelists are very protective of their work when, it beca- when it's adapted as a screenplay. They, they, they want to see it faithfully reproduced on the screen. Uh, but I've come through a, a screenwriting um, education, and, and for me, um, you know, they're very different media, um, film and, and, and novel. They've got the different strengths and weaknesses, and I would like to see the best film made, whether or not it's absolutely faithful to the book, as long as it's faithful to the spirit of the book. Uh, what about casting for Rosie? Casting for Rosie? Well, Jennifer Lawrence is the go-to person for everything at the moment, but she's, pay, she's played a, a not entirely dissimilar role in Silver Linings Playbook, and my guess is that uh, you know, she may be wanting to do something a little different. Um, but, you know, I, Kerry Mulligan um, is a name that's been kicked around a couple of times, um, the, the British actress, and she certainly looks to me as I imagine Rosie in my mind. Hmm. Uh, if I put myself in, in your place, uh, you, you made this decision... Uh, courageous some in prospect might have called it foolish as well um to to make this career change you, you follow your dream and and uh yeah. it's it's sure hit for you and for some people it doesn't work out well well look it wasn't that courageous there you go um because i mean i think the courageous people in some ways are the people in their 20s who say all right i'm gonna put you know maybe end up pulling coffee for the rest of my life or working in a bar because and, and never fit, follow any any other you know, standard sort of career that's going to give me a high income or anything like that because I want to pursue my dream which is um, you know which is creative of some sort be it uh, you know, be it literary be it artistic whatever and you know those guys are taking a pretty big risk um, because they're going to find themselves perhaps with kids that they can't afford to send to college all those sorts of things um, I basically had got myself into a reasonably financially secure position before I did this so and I had a, a day job that um, that paid pretty well because I'd had you know, all those years to build a career. So, you know, in some ways, doing doing one career first and then the other one second was a sort of conservative approach, given that I did want to do two things in my life.
What did your family think? You you sit them down and say, I want to leave IT, I want to write screenplays. Yeah, look, I didn't sit the kids down. Um, they they just go with the flow. You know? um, but I, I talked about it with my wife, and look, she, she was fantastically supportive. Um, we've always sort of been a team through our relationship. And um, I was also going to keep my day job. So even though I sold my business, I kept on freelance consulting work and, and teaching work. Which um, which gave me quite a respectable income. So I was just doing this thing. She, she herself, want, I mean, the only thing with her was that she'd always wanted to be a writer, right, since the age of eight, and she'd really sacrificed that that chance so she could focus on her work. She's a professor of psychiatry, so there was probably on her part just a little bit of, of jealousy. And I don't mean that in a, a negative way about her, but just saying, wow, I'd really love to do this, but I'm just working so hard in, in my work as a as a professor of psychiatry, I just can't find space in my life for it. So is, I get imagine you get this question a lot. Is is there something of uh, of you and Don Tillman or the reverse? And then what about yeah, the? Yeah, I uh, would say about thirty eight percent. Okay. <laughs> now, look, I I think any character, and I include Rosie here, Jean, uh, every character has a little bit of yourself in it, because you know when you're writing that character, you you've got to think, you know, what would that character do under the circumstances? And some of that is asking yourself, what would I do? What would be reasonable? Um, you know, so yes, there's a bit of Don Tillman. Um, I'm able to inhabit his character, but on the other hand, I mean, Don Tillman almost certainly has Asperger's syndrome or high-functioning autism, and I don't identify as having that myself. So it's, a, it's still a pretty big leap to be Don Tillman to, to write in Don Tillman's voice. Yeah, he, he's uh, you, you sort of take it to, to the nth degree, as I said before. You know, tweak it a little bit to, to get to Don Tillman. He's a fascinating character. Uh, by the way, do, do you have your book with you? Um, I've got the Rosie effect with me. Y- yes, um, just to give the people a f- book, of course. Yeah. Yes, uh, and I want to talk about the Rosie effect here. Uh, just to give people a flavor of Don Tillman um, and Rosie as well, if if they're not familiar with uh, the Rosie mm. project or or uh, you know uh, the Rosie effect. Mm. So page thirty four. Page thirty four. Okay. Um, and we, we'll. we'll I, I'm going. I want your audience to know this was announced without notice. Yeah, I have no yeah. idea what I'm about to find on page thirty four. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but I think this is so Don Tillman, um, and you know, there's some hilarious passages. I, I I was chuckling pretty good when I when I was reading you know this page along with some others. Um, but we should set this up. The 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 kind of the central crisis, as Don probably would see it, is uh, in this book is uh, he and Rosie are happily married, and but now now she's pregnant. So where would you like me to start? Would you like me to read then? Yeah, just uh, start at the top. Read the, just read the page. Um, and so they're talking about uh, Rosie has announced she's pregnant and she's not too far along. Okay. The term baby is misleading. It's not much advanced from a blastocyst. I'm not calling it a blastocyst. Embryo. It's not a fetus yet. Attention, Don. I'm going to say this once. I don't want 40 weeks of technical commentary. 35. Gestation is conventionally measured from two weeks prior to conception, and our best guess is the event occurred three weeks ago following the Roman holiday impression, which needs to be confirmed by a medical professional. Have you made an appointment? I only found out I was pregnant yesterday. Anyway, as far as I'm concerned, it's a baby, a potential baby, okay? A baby under development. Right. Perfect. We can refer to it as the baby under development. B-U-D. Bud. Bud? Bud? makes him sound like a 70-year-old man, if it's a he. 
ignoring gender, it's statistically likely the bud will reach the age of 70. Assuming successful development in birth and no major changes to the environment on which the statistics are based, such as nuclear holocaust, meteorite of the kind that caused the dinosaur extinction, being talked to death by his father, it's still a male name. Also the name of a flower component, a precursor to a flower. Flowers are considered feminine. Your name has a feminine connection. Bud is perfect. Reproductive mechanism for a flower. Rosebud. Rosy bud. Okay, okay. I was thinking that the baby, speaking in the future tense, could sleep in the living room until we find a bigger place. Of course, we should buy Bud a fold-up bed. <laughs> what? Don, babies sleep in cribs. I was thinking of later, when it's big enough for a bed. We should buy one now, so we're prepared. We can go to the bed shop tomorrow. <laughs> we don't need a bed yet. We don't even need to buy the crib for a while. Let's wait till we know that everything's okay. I poured the last of the previous evening's Pinot Gris and wished there was more in the bottle. Subtlety was not getting me anywhere. We need the bed for Gene. He and Claudia have split up. He has a job at Columbia, and he's staying with us until he can find somewhere else to live. Okay, we can yeah, we can uh, pause it there. Uh, and so he's, in his, <laughs> what he thinks is a subtle way, he's bringing up a, a precipitated crisis. Uh, he, he's wanting to move his friend in. After, after yeah, his yeah, into their, into their tiny up. apartment. Yep. Yeah. Uh, his philandering friend, who is also Rosie's, PhD advisor, who she can't stand. Yeah, and so this gives you a flavor of Don and 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 Rosie, as she says, she doesn't want forty weeks of technical commentary. She probably will get forty weeks of technical commentary during well, the Well, of course. Yeah, and they're referring to the baby as Bud, <laughs> which is and which which Don sees as perfectly logical, right? Well, yeah. That's it. Look, I have to say when when I write Don, uh, when I need to inhabit his, his his head, as it were, I used to work in information technology, and when you're working on you know, a computer program that's got a bug in it or something like that, you you assume a very specific sort of mindset. It's completely objective. It's problem-solving. Emotions don't come into it. You don't say to someone, hey, you're feeling at this stage, because it doesn't matter. What you say is, is that right? Is that wrong? Is that working? Is that not? What can we do here? And I just would assume that mindset when I was writing Don, even though he might be in a social situation. So here he is using an acronym for BUD because you know, that's what you do in computing. Um, so you know, I can't, you know, I, I'm not Don, but I can I can assume his mindset by pretending I'm working in a in a technical situation. Uh, right. So bring some of the professional. Yeah. Yep. Uh, in. Um, so, uh, so you're setting up, of course, an interesting uh, dilemma, an interesting conflict, and that'll play out in the Rosie effect. Uh, another thing is they've uh, moved to New York. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, the New York thing was. Really, you have to go back a little, that when I wrote The Rosie Project, I had no intention of writing a sequel. And I wrapped up all the loose ends at the end of The Rosie Project, as you do in a romantic comedy and that sort of story. You tie it all, all together at the end. And part of it was that in the, in the Rosie Project, they had visited New York, and New York gave Don a chance to be out of his home environment and to be a little different, to reinvent himself a bit. And they have a wonderful time in New York, and that's really the start of their relationship. So at the end of the book, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if they went to New York to live and they could continue this? So it was just a, you know, a throwaway thing in the last couple of pages. And then when I came to write a sequel, you know, I had set the situation up. So they were in New York, and I, I guess I could have taken them back home to Melbourne, Australia. Um, but I thought, no, let's, let's work with what we've got here. So I said, let's, you know, let's have these guys living in New York. Um, and I had lived in New York for, for seven months um, at one point. 
And I thought that that should be enough for someone to get Don's view of New York because he hasn't been living there that much longer either. I mean, if I was trying to write it from a, the view of a native New Yorker, I'd have to do a lot more work. But I already had the basic background for someone who was a relatively new person coming from coming from Australia, which I do. Mm. And Don is dodging deportation. Yeah, Don gets himself into a little bit of trouble. Um, Don goes to the uh, to the playground to observe kids um, in preparation for fatherhood, and he gets himself arrested and uh, and has to have a psychological assessment. and And before long, he's managed to screw these things up monumentally, as Don does, and he's potentially uh, going to be deported. But he doesn't. He decides he's not going to tell Rosie about this. And uh, this this, of course, starts this chain of deception. Um, and he doesn't want to tell Rosie because he doesn't want to raise her stress levels, which will then lift her cortisol levels, which might lead to some problems for the baby. So he's got a good rationalisation for all of this. Um, but, of course, in a, in a comedy, deception is, is uh, usually, usually a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you've got some interesting settings here. He's, uh, they're, they're living... Um, I, I can't, couldn't quite picture this. An industrial refrigeration unit occupies half the apartment. Yeah, that's right. Well, not half the apartment, one room of the apartment. Okay. So half's just a little bit of an exaggeration by a, by my copywriters. But yeah, he's um, he's moved into a a, a, a fabulous apartment, um, you know, on the on the west side of New York, um, Manhattan, um, because he's got a job maintaining this guy's industrial refrigeration unit, which services his beer supply. So there's an Englishman living <laughs> in the apartment upstairs. He's bought both apartments. And his his idea was to convert the lower apartment or part of it to a, a refrigeration unit for his imported English beer. And uh, Don's friend Dave is a refrigeration engineer. He's got the job of maintaining it. Don takes over that uh, that technical job and uh, occupies the rest of the apartment. <laughs> this is Dave, the baseball fan. Dave's Dave, the baseball to. fan. Yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, it, 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 uh, there's to be some culture shock as well, I imagine, for Don. Well, yeah, although Don is always a fish out of water. He's always a stranger in a strange land. Um, so, you know, New York is not a, is not a huge culture change for him. Um, he's, pretty, he's pretty used to living. Um, so so not, not much of what happens in the book is about Don not getting New York. I didn't, I didn't want to do that sort of Crocodile Dundee, you know, Australian in the USA um, sort of story. Um, Don's, Don's problems would, would arise whether he was... In um, in New York, in London, in Paris, um, he's going to be weird in all of those places. Let me ask you about you and and I don't know culture shock might be the strong term, but you know culture differences. Um, I, I know Americans are in, in some respects fascinated by Australians. Uh, um, yeah. I, I don't know, but the vice versa. It seems like all of all of Hollywood actors are Australian. Yeah, it does sometimes. We might end up with uh, Hugh Jackman playing Don or something like that. Yeah. but. But look, I guess the U.S. is very familiar to um, to Australians, and indeed to um, to the world, um, through popular culture. I mean, the U.S. so dominates you know, movies, books, and so forth that we have a real familiarity with the U.S. So it, it's very unusual for me to hear an expression, for example, in the USA that isn't familiar to me, even though I might not use it directly myself. Um, so the language is, is hugely familiar. Whereas I guess. Um, I could use an Australian expression, um, and it, it might be unfamiliar to you. So the, both books have been um, versioned, is the technical term, um, for American audiences. 
Uh, so there are you know, a few changes in language. I mean, there's no change to the story, but just occasional changes to expressions and language um, to make them American-friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wonder what that does uh, to, to, you know, you say that uh, American culture is so pervasive through the movies and television and so forth that you living in Australia, you, you know, you know the expressions and such. And uh, on the other hand, for example, the exotic is fascinating and, and enjoyable. I mean, I, I, yeah, well, I, I guess if I want exotic, I'll go to Paris or I'll go to I'll go to um, you know, a country in Africa or South America or, or whatever. But you know, so, so the U.S. is is interesting. It's, it's a great place you know to, to spend time, and I love the, the USA. But it's not exotic to me. Hmm. And I'm thinking about um, at, at one point early in the history of cable, Australian rules football was 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 all over the place. Maybe because they could get it cheaply. And uh, that's what I'm talking about with exotic. That was so interesting to me. So I'd sit for hours on end trying to figure it out and, and well, enjoying it. Well, I have to say, watching you know? American football, I have the same experience. Yeah. If I sit there and I'm sitting in a bar or something like that and I'm watching uh, a game up on the screen, I'm thinking, you know, you, yes, every now and again they'll do something. You say, well, that was very athletic, it was very skilled, but I'm not <laughs> entirely sure right. you know, what, what was going on there, what the rules were or why they didn't do that, whatever. Although Australian rules is, is a very simple game. Um it's uh, there are there are not that many rules. Yeah, that, and my I, I don't know maybe it's coming from a different culture. My favorite part of the whole game is uh, when the when the I guess the officials come out and and indicate that 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 mark was 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 good. You know, yep. <laughs> they, they'll they'll throw their hand forward. In any case, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the the character of Don. Well, let's take a break, and uh, when we come back, more more about Don. I'm interested in this. Uh, when we talked before, it, I asked you, and you made reference to it early in the program, and I'm sure people ask you, is, is Don on the Asperger's, you know, is, is he on the autism spectrum? I think you say he, he might be, right? He's, he's somewhere in there, perhaps? Oh, look, absolutely. Um, now, not, and that is not my diagnosis. I didn't create Don saying, I wanted to create this guy who's on the spectrum. I wanted to create an interesting guy who drew on a lot of people I'd met working in information technology and, and studying at university. Um, so I didn't do any, any formal research on, on, um, on Asperger's or autism. But the Asperger's slash autism community have embraced Don as one of their own. And psychologists who specialize in that area have assured me that Don has Asperger's. I mean, just, just to get the, the language right here, um, these days, technically, we would say high-functioning autism um, the word Asperger's is, is sort of um, historical now, but there are plenty of people around who have Asperger who were diagnosed with Asperger's when that was the term, who would still use that term. So it's it's still got a certain amount of currency. I mean, I say Asperger's because it's for a certain degree it's it's shorthand to me for, for that high functioning level of autism. And and I'm I have this issue as soon as I start saying autism, then there will be people who um, perhaps are parents of a child with autism who has really, really serious um, challenges in life. They might lack language skills, all those sorts of things. And you know, I've written a comedy, and I'm not writing a comedy about that kid. I'm writing a comedy about a guy who is sufficiently high-functioning, that he can hold down a high-paid job as a university professor, that he has friends, that, that his biggest problem in life is was getting a date. And let me say, he's not the only guy who's had that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the only guy who... Who at least takes a questionnaire? You know, uh, we we wouldn't develop a questionnaire. He develops a sixteen-page questionnaire. But you know, dating sites here. Well, if you're if you're uh, involved in internet dating, um, you know, at the end of the day, the the, the 
bigger the internet dating becomes, the more selective, particularly if you are a an attractive person, someone who's in the right age range, um, good-looking, all those sorts of things, that the moment you put a profile up there, you're going to be swamped with people who want to date you. You're going to have to be selective in some way. And, and in some ways, sadly, that means possibly rejecting people who might be your, your perfect partner, but you just can't deal with all the numbers. Um, you know, my wife um, had one rule. She was not going to marry a man who was under five foot ten. It's not like she's tall herself. She's about five four herself. But she was not going to marry a man who was under five foot ten. That was one thing. And if she'd done back in the day, if that internet dating, the moment my height had come up, which is not five foot ten, she would have just rejected me. She she said that you know if that was up there, it didn't matter what else you had going for you, forget it. I'm not going to go there. So um, these you know these uh, these questionnaires are necessary at one level, but we don't always know what it is we want. And that that's exemplified brilliantly, of course, by Don and, and Rosie in the, in the in the Rosie Project. You know, that's that's the main theme. He uh, he uh, finds the woman who's the most incompatible, perhaps, in the whole world, and ends up falling for. Her. Yeah, because none of those superficial things about whether she eats, um, you know, whether she eats variety food, meats, or whether she um, you know, uh, smokes, even you know, none of those things at the end of the day are what make people compatible in a deep sense. So I wonder, you know, uh, internet dating, it's, you know, it's expanding, it seems like. It's very popular, um, and using these services, I imagine, can help. But maybe if you close off the people around you, you know, face-to-face, you're, you're closing off, as you said, to someone who might be right for you. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky question. It's a bit of a numbers game. There's a friend of mine who helped inspire... Don Tillman's voice and he himself struggled for a long time to find a partner and he said to me I only wish that in my day internet dating had been available because I could have just put out there who I was and even though there might not be that many women who would go for that there are some and I would find those women whereas if I was just relying on turning up at um, you know these dinner for six um, dating things and so on and you'd say you'd sit down and the three women would just look at him and, nah, not for me, thanks. And he'd have to sit through the rest of the dinner. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, and that, so I guess that's the, that's the problem. There's benefits and problems as well. well let's take a break. Yeah. Um, we'll, uh, we'll come back uh, after just a, a brief break. Uh, the book is The Rosie Effect. It's the sequel to the wildly popular The Rosie Project, which has now been optioned for a movie. Graham Simpson is the author. And uh, the uh, the update is Don Tillman has married Rosie uh, Jarman, the most in- incompatible woman for him. But luckily, they uh, ended up together. Uh, and uh, now he's trying to systematize Rosie's pregnancy. She's announced that they're going to have a baby. And there's some other complications as well. They're living in New York, and uh, Don is uh, trying to dodge deportation and some other problems as well. Um, Graham Simpson will be in Salt Lake City on Saturday. There's an event at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City uh, on Saturday at uh, 7 o'clock, and you're invited to uh, to go and uh, hear a reading and uh, get your book signed uh, there. More following this brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Featuring lunch, panini salads, sandwiches, and soups. Full menu at crumbrothers.com. 
We're back with Graham Simpson. He is author of the best-selling The Rosie Project, in which the hero Don Tillman, as he does with everything, tries to systematize finding a wife. In fact, he sets up the Wife Project, a 16-page questionnaire. Uh, he mates the woman who, according to the questionnaire, be uh, uh, the opposite of perfect for him, but she ends up in real life being perfect for him. They get married. Now in The Rosie Effect, the new novel, uh, Rosie is pregnant. And so uh, she's not looking forward to uh, uh, 40 weeks of technical commentary, as she uh, says, but uh, that's probably what she's going to get. And uh, will their marriage survive? And uh, can uh, Don help out his friends who have uh, split up and some other complications as well? We're talking with Graham Simpson. He'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Saturday, 7 p.m. You're welcome to that event, free and open uh, to the public. Graham Simpson, I'd like to open this uh, segment uh, talking a bit about uh, Don's um, difficulty connecting with people. And we've talked about uh, somewhere on the autism spectrum. You refer to it as Asperger's. You didn't set out to, to write him uh, you know, specifically on the autistic, uh, autism spectrum. But I'm interested in this, this difficulty. Um, a lot of us don't have the difficulties that Don has in connecting with other people, and yet he does have this impulse, right? He he wanted to marry, so he he, he was fortunate, blessed in in finding uh, Rosie. Now he wants to help his friends. Uh, he 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 does have friendships. There is that impulse, but there's just some extra disconnect. Yeah, it's very interesting what you say here because um, the, I don't normally comment on on reviews, but there was one that really really annoyed me um, in in the sense that. That they said the Rosie Project is unrealistic because a guy like Don would rather stay at home and play with the Xbox or whatever than than go out and have a relationship. And um, I was actually asked by an Israeli newspaper to comment on that. So I I, I phoned the friend who gave, who gave me the inspiration for the Don voice and to some degree the Don character. And I said, what do you think of that? And he was so angry. He said, look, just because we're not very good at this, not very good at making connections with people, doesn't mean we don't want them. That, and people get that wrong all the time. They think that because we're awkward socially, that means we don't want to have a partner. It's quite the opposite. You know, we want more than anything to have those connections and to have the same things that other people have. We're just not particularly good at it. Um, so... Uh, so um, Look, and, and when you say, you know, the rest of us, you know, we manage okay, well, you know, we've probably all got a bit of Don in us. I think there aren't too many people out there who haven't gone on a date and, and felt awkward or said the wrong thing and slapped their forehead afterwards and said, why did I say that? I made a fool of myself, etc. And you've just got to sort of multiply that by 10 and you've got Don. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very true. I, it makes me think of the pitched battles that... <laughs> Was my dating life before I got married? I did, you know, yeah, look, just hated it because it was so have difficult. An easy path yeah. through that dating life to find a partner. It's um, and and Don is just a little bit of an exaggeration of what we what we all experience and feel. Mm -hmm. I think that idea is out there. You know, it does float around, doesn't it? The, this idea that was expressed in this review that, uh, especially if you have a quote unquote problem like Don's, that uh, that you don't really want to connect. But I think we all do. As you yeah, look, there's a moment, that, about the one moment in the Rosie effect where Don actually gets angry. And he gets angry because the social worker says to him, you don't have any feelings at all. And he is just so angry about that because he says this is a confusion he has to deal with all the time, that because he's not very good at reading other people's feelings, 
that that means he doesn't have feelings himself. And he says they're they're totally different things. He feels just as much as anybody else. He's just not very good at at seeing what's going on. I wonder where this impulse comes from. You you and this is produces some of the funniest comedy uh, surrounding Don and everyone who's in his life is is this impulse to systematize life, right? Life is messy, but he he wants to apply the scientific method to everything he does. Uh, and I think maybe a lot of us have that impulse. Yeah, look, and I think that's a that's quite an insightful observation you make, that life is messy. Don Don's desire to systematize is, he would say, well, obviously you need to be efficient in what you do. You don't want to waste time, blah, blah, blah. But at a deeper level, he doesn't like the chaos around him. He doesn't like things that he can't handle intellectually. So he, he seeks to control it. He seeks to, to make things manageable so he doesn't get faced with, with the unpredictable. If you just joined us, we're talking with Graham Simpson. He is author of the best-selling uh, novel, The Rosie Project. Now he's out with a sequel, The Rosie Effect. And uh, that is now out. The Rosie Project has been optioned for a screenplay. Early in the program, we talked about uh, possible casting choices for the for that movie, which will be uh, coming out. Um, and uh, Don and Graham Simpson is uh, writing the screenplay. Did you have that done, or you're, you're writing it, or what? Done. I have. Done uh, okay. I have thrown it over the fence, as Ernest Hemingway would say, and I've thrown it over the state line, and it's now in the the hands of, of Sony Pictures and. Uh, the people they will doubtless get to rewrite and uh, improve it, and I'm I'm pretty comfortable with that. So I'm I'm busy working on my next novel. All right. What is the next novel? What's what's that? Well, about? nothing to do with Don and Rosie. Okay. I may come back to to Don and Rosie in look in about five to seven years time. Um, about I'm thinking about five, seven years in literary time. So I mean we've already said that uh, the the Rosie effect is about uh, Don preparing for fatherhood. So. It's no spoiler to say that at the end of that, you can guess what the outcome is. And I would like that outcome to have about seven years to grow and then come back and revisit Don and Rosie and see what and see what they're doing. Um, so in the meantime, I have a couple of, um, of book plans, and, and one of them is, is well advanced, um, which is a story of a love affair rekindled after 20 years. So two people meet, fall in love, but it, circumstances mean that that nothing nothing further happens and then 20 years later both having felt that that was the love of their lives they reconnect so um, not not a full-on comedy it's um, a relationship story but with uh, I hope a reasonable number of touches of comedy uh, we have maybe 10 minutes left in the uh, discussion here I want to get on to some other things very interesting things on your website by the way Graham uh, com. Um, but uh, I wonder, I'm just springing this on you, I don't know if you have a, another passage from the book that, you, that you'd like to, to read. Well, look, okay, let me, um, let me just have a, I, I don't want to be, I won't make it too long. I'll tell you what, here's one, um, just I find the page. Here's one, um, that, look, I think it's not the funniest or the most dramatic passage in the book, but it gives you a flavor of how the dynamic is starting to work out with Jean living with them. Okay. I returned home at 6.43 p.m., having purchased a single high-quality red rose, indicating one year of marriage on the way. As I opened the door, it occurred to me that Rosie might have organized the Eslers to remove me from the house while she prepared some sort of surprise. I was right, and my worst fears were realized. Rosie was in the kitchen. She was cooking, or at least preparing food, or attempting to prepare food. 
On our first date, Rosie confessed that she could not cook to save her life, and I had seen no evidence to contradict this. The scallops on the night of the orange juice incident, when I was unavailable due to meltdown and then sex, were the most recent culinary disaster. As I headed to the kitchen to deliver advice and render assistance, Gene emerged from his room and pushed me back out the door, which he closed behind us. You were about to help Rosie out in the kitchen, am I right? Correct. And you would have started by saying, do you need any help, darling? I reflected for a few moments. In reality, I would have assessed the situation and determined what needed to be done, as would be appropriate for a qualified person arriving at the scene of an accident. Jean spoke before I had formulated a response. Before you do anything, think about which is more important, the quality of one meal or the quality of your relationship. If the answer is the second, you're about to have one of the great meals of your life prepared without any assistance from you. Naturally, my focus had been on the meal, but I could see the logic of Jean's argument. So, so which... Um, so which husband has not made that mistake at some yeah, stage. Yeah, yes, that's, that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. And uh, that's very Don. He's focused on the practicalities, on the logic of the situation, without any proper consideration for the emotional situation. And he's got Gene there, uh, on this occasion, being a pretty good coach. Gene isn't always a good coach. Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's sort of a flawed advisor, but, but he's yeah, an advisor right. nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, and um, Don takes approach to to sex for example very systematically he's he's noticed that there are four things he can do in combination that that might make uh, Rosie um you know want to have sex with him. one one is i think what impersonating um Gregory, Gregory Peck, Peck. Yeah. yeah he does a Greg, he does Gregory Peck impressions yep but he no, but he but he doesn't want to make it too obvious so he can't do all four approaches uh you know in one no, no. If I recall rightly, it's um, it's it's in the morning. It's the double espresso coffee from the local espresso shop. It's a blueberry muffin. It's his Gregory Peck impression and the removal of his pajama top. <laughs> so, so what he does is he tosses a coin twice to work out which one of those things not to do, and he only does three of them so that you won't guess that he's uh, he's doing it. That's that's very much a, a Don thing. Um, so uh, but let, let me tell you, what man, what married man has not looked to say to see what um, what sort of um, moves might uh, you know, might look after him from time to time, yeah. and said, "Okay, I know that you know the massage is the way to go, or the glass of champagne, or, or whatever." Um, yeah. So, so Don's just a, an exaggeration of, of characteristics we see in, in a lot of people. By the way, what uh, what reaction do you get from people? Like, do, what do you expect maybe at the King's English uh, on Saturday? By the way, at 7 o'clock, uh, Graham Simpson will be there in Salt Lake City. Um, and, and you've said there, there might be different responses from men and women who, who respond to the book. Well, look, I'll tell you, um, Bill Gates is a lovely example and, and very typical. His wife, Melinda, read The Rosie Project, laughed her head off, and gave it to Bill and said, this is the funniest book. And he read it and he said, this is profound. <laughs> so, so the men relate a little more closely to Don and say, well, you know, you know, the women say, it's hilarious. My husband does that all the time. <laughs> That's interesting. My husband reads it and he says, well, I do that all the time. That's good to see that somebody understands why I do that. Um, now, it's not always divided exactly on gender lines, of course. Um, but um, the, the rosy effect, um, I've had... The reactions have been very interesting. Some, but most people treat it just like 
flipping back into a favourite sitcom or something like that. It's more of the same, they're enjoying it and so on. But there have been a group of people who like it a lot less and a group of people who like it a lot more. And the people who like it a lot more like it because we learn a lot more about Don. They like it because of Don. And the people who like it less usually have an issue with Rosie. And they're invariably women. I have had none of this feedback from men. It's, and it's because they think they're used to identifying with the female in a, in a book about relationships, they're almost always told from female point of view, and they're used to identifying with that character. And Rosie, Rosie is not perfect in the Rosie effect, particularly through Don's eyes. And you have to remember, you're seeing him, seeing her through Don's eyes, and Don gets to explain himself. Rosie doesn't get to explain herself. And there's been a few people who say, "I can't stand Rosie in the in the second book." Um, but women who've been who I've spoken to who've been married to who are married to men with Asperger's syndrome have said, no, that's exactly how I feel, so it's, 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 or how I behave, so mm. it's not a million miles away for, for them. Yeah, it's interesting, it must be interesting for you, it's, it'd be sort of like a Rorschach test, you know, people reveal something about themselves, the way they respond. Well, look, I think one of the things, one of the big things I've learned as, as a writer is that there are two people involved in a, in a reading-writing experience, you know, that half of it is what I put on the page, and half of it is what the what the reader brings to the book. And you know, different readers will bring very, very different things. I mean, with the Rosie Project in particular, in the first book, some people you know, you get reviews that oh, it's, it's a very light piece of beach reading, funny, enjoyed it, tossed it aside. And then there are others who said I'm reading it for the third time. There's a lot in this book, and so on. So you know, some will see it as light comedy. Others will see it as having something something to say. And and then you'll add a third element when it becomes a movie. Well, then there's, then there's a movie, which will, of course, there'll be the people who think it's a, uh, you know, that it hasn't been faithful to the book. Other people who will say, well, that doesn't matter so much. It's a good movie in its own right, or, or who knows? I mean, I, I wait to be and hope to be pleasantly surprised. We just have a few minutes left, and I want to uh, turn to a couple things I found very interesting on your website, some other things that, you're, that you've worked on. One is you've got this prominently it's, uh, above the fold, as they say on your website. It's a short play. It's called Prisoner's Dilemma. Oh, yeah, it's it's yeah. a play that you you wrote, and uh, then this is a one-take film of that play. So just a few characters, and and the dilemma, well, you can set the dilemma up, I, I suppose. A very interesting dilemma involving the human element, but also logic. Yeah, and certainly not original to me. It's a, it's a well-known logic problem, um, the, the Prisoner's Dilemma, and uh, and I would... Rather than try to explain it on the radio, I would encourage people to just look up Prisoner's Dilemma. Okay. Um, Douglas Hofstadter did an excellent um, analysis of it at one stage, but I'm sure you'll find plenty of good um, good descriptions of it on the web. And I just cho- chose to to dramatise that to, to put to make it to make it human, um, to throw in a little bit of a little bit of humour and so on. It was a, a play that got put on a 10 minute play competition, got put on at the theatre in Melbourne, and uh, then there was a another. You know, the competition or whatever, you know, film it uh, a ten-minute play. So you do it all in one take. So um, it was uh, was something we did for just a little bit of fun. But I, I put it up there on um, on the web. Yeah, GrahamSimpson dot com. It's it's right there. The first thing you'll see, and it, it's a, it's a short play. Um, another thing I would love to talk about is a couple things you've written on your blog. One is something that we're wrestling with here in America, and I was uh, I don't know maybe heartened to see you're dealing with it a bit there in Australia as well. You're responding to a, a um, how should I put it, a acrimonious by-election. 
Uh, yeah. And you're talking about uh, disagreement and dysfunction, and uh, boy, that's something we're dealing with here. And uh, and you're you're talking about uh, how just putting maybe something positive at the beginning and end of whatever we're saying can have a good effect. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a, an an issue that um, I mean, I, I worked for um, for many years as a consultant um, in information technology and so forth, and then when I was studying my my screenwriting and I needed to make a living at the same time. I, I went out and taught, having run a consultancy, I went out and taught consulting skills. And I did a lot of stuff around dispute resolution and, and problem solving and so forth. And then I found, I guess, I took the same philosophy in, into writing. Um, I don't want to make this too much of a stretch, but I don't have any um, any cardboard cut-out villains, um, or for that matter, angels, in my in my books. Um, they're all human beings. They're all flawed human beings, but I can inhabit all of them. You know, they say don't uh, don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins, um, and I, I feel I have to be able to walk a mile in the moccasins of every one of my characters, even you know, the evil Lydia and so forth. So, I mean, someone said to me, Lydia is the most the nastiest character in all fiction, and I said to her, you need to broaden your reading a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, there are, but, there are but, you know, nasty I, characters I out there. Have a, I, Certainly in Australia, in my in my opinion, um, politics has become very tribal. That people end up on one side or the other, and it's all good on their side and all bad on the other. It's like supporting a a football team or something like that. And you know, I'm I'm a I'm a lot less sure of myself on these matters. I consider myself a pretty educated person, but that's made me less sure rather than more sure. That there are there are often um, your opponents, even the fact that you characterise them as an opponent, but that person's arguments um, often have many merits, and there are there are middle paths and, and paths that we can agree on, rather than emphasising our differences. Finally, I wanted to talk a little about another blog posting. You you bring up the interesting issue of how do we measure the quality of a creative project? Uh, so you know, data modelling you say is a useful tool. Quality dimensions and. Uh, you say that this is this was provoked by feedback from your editor on the Rosie Project, and then there's a post on on data model uh, quality. Uh, interesting, you you know you're you're sort of getting into these areas of um, analyzing and and doing modeling, which is often applied to very concrete elements, and now you're applying it to a creative output to, to try to judge the quality. Yeah, look, um, it's 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 a long it's a long discussion. It's it's a while since I wrote that blog too. I've been very lazy with my blogging, trying to. Do some uh, do some uh, short stories and, uh, and novels in the meantime, but the, the core of this is that I actually undertook a PhD in design theory, which was prompted by the work I'd done in database design. It's you know, data modeling, database design, and there are principles of design which apply no matter what you're designing, be it a house, be it a database, be it a screenplay. And I actually found that there were principles I had learned that I could apply to my to my screenwriting, and um, and and by extension, because my novel came from a screenplay, you know, principles that uh, that I could apply to the to the novel around around creativity and so forth. I mean, if people are interested in that, I actually did a TEDx talk. So if they search search me um, in my name and TEDx, they'll find me talking about something called. Uh, I think from IT projects to the Rosie Project, or or something similar. But uh, but it, look, it's an interesting area that, uh, at a broader level, what I would say, because I'm, I'm someone who sort of reinvented himself um, career-wise, at least at 50. Um, you use what you've got 
almost everything that you, you've learned um, in life can be applied to to, um, to a new to a new career. There's so much that you can use from from old careers, from your previous experience, and in some ways that gives you the edge. It gives you a, a different perspective, a bit of originality in uh, in how you go about the task. It also took me back to you know earlier in our conversation uh, this impulse that Don has to impose some order on a chaotic world. This this you know and I'm fascinated in process. Uh, sometimes uh, to the detriment of you know actually getting the job done. I think that's that same impulse, and I see a little bit of that in here, uh, which is to say that you can you can impose some order. You can follow some processes, right? You can't you can't you can't control a chaotic world, but you can you can follow some processes. Yeah, look, I think screenwriters in particular are very aware of this. Um, ever since um, work of people like Sid Field and so forth, who looked at Hollywood films and, and analysed how they were put together and said, OK, at about a quarter of the way through, we have a first act turning point and, you know, and so on and so forth, and got some principles, you know, rules, guidelines, whatever you want to call them, out of that. Screenwriting has been seen as, as having a certain amount of of structured thinking associated with it. So screenwriters are famously using their cork boards to lay out the story on index cards and, and so on. I, I don't think novelists tend to think of their job quite that way, um, but I think the story aspect of a novel, um, the plot aspect of a novel, can be can be handled that way. And I don't think it takes anything away from the from the creativity. In fact, if anything, you're saying let's you know, let's not have to do too much thinking about the routine stuff. Let's save our creative thinking for what we build on top of that. Well, we're out of time. Uh, the Rosie Effect is out. It's the sequel to the uh, best-selling novel, The Rosie Project. The Rosie Project has been opt- optioned for a movie. We'll be seeing that uh, down the line. Uh, Don uh, or uh, Graham Simpson has uh, has finished the screenplay, and so now it's in the hands of the filmmakers. Um, and uh, the Rosie Effect is out, and Graham Simpson is uh, touring uh, uh, for the book. He'll be at Salt Lake City at the King's English Bookshop on Saturday, 7 p.m., free and open to the public. You can go and interact with uh, Graham Simpson. Always a pleasure, Graham Simpson. The books are wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Great talking to you again, Tom. Look forward to talking to you for the third book. Okay. We'll look forward to that. <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. <laughs>